0: It's Saturday, November 7th, 2020. Welcome to the Front Porch Report election special. I'm Taz. I'm Sam. And we are your co-hosts. Today is a very special day because we are going to be covering the results of the election. But there's a twist. You see, Sam has spent the last five days in a self-imposed media, social media, friend group exile and hasn't looked at any information about what has been going on as we've been tallying the votes for the election. So, living under his rock, Sam knows nothing, and we're going to have some fun with that.
1: Yeah, um, I did have some spoilers, unfortunately. My mother texted me something about um, Michigan having like 101% of registered voters vote. Um, I Don't know if that's true or not. Uh, I doubt that that's true for the entirety of the state. Maybe some precincts within the state had that as an issue, but uh, I don't know uh, how credible that is. I had a few other things. Um, You know, my wife, about halfway through the week, said, well, can I at least tell you which states that we're waiting on, which told me that we were waiting on multiple states Um, you know, and I knew some things from beforehand. I knew that Pennsylvania had mentioned that they were accepting ballots regardless of postmark up until the 6th. So that was just yesterday. So, um, from what I understood though, uh, I was in the dark just as everyone else was because things were still up in the air for quite a while until from what I understand, we're just solidified this morning for at least from what I've heard from other people.
0: Yep. We've been... It was a touch-and-go thing for quite a while there, and, um, you know, kind of the day after election night, I kind of had an idea of who I thought was going to win, and I think most people did, but it really was anyone's race um, up until, like you said, pretty much this morning. So so do we
1: have a solid answer as of this morning?
0: This morning? Well, obviously nothing's official yet, because it's all going to be um, litigated in the courts and mm-hmm. in the states and everything, but... Um, As of this morning, we can pretty confidently declare who the winner is. Okay. And we'll get to that a little later in the episode for the grand finale. Okay.
1: So uh, we're going to break this down into um, three kind of major sections. So we're going to talk mostly about the federal elections. Um, So the first section, we're going to talk about the Senate and uh, what the results were there. Next, we'll talk about the House and the results that thereof, Uh, and then we'll save, of course, the presidency for last.
0: Before we get into actual results, though, Sam, I think that you've done some research on some of the key institutions of our government so that we can give some context to maybe some of the talking points that people have given about the Senate or the House or these different places. So as we move into the Senate section of our episode, could you tell us a little bit about the Senate?
1: Yeah, I think it's important here to understand that um, you know, we have to understand why the framers made our government the way they did. Right? Uh, and having an understanding of the context and the reasons why they gave us um, you know, the great documents such as the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and why that has been passed down and preserved for so long. Uh, I think it's important, and you hear, you know, you probably have your friends sharing box articles on Facebook or saying, like, we need to, you know, get rid of the Senate, or we need to, the Senate is, you know, undemocratic, or we need to abolish the Electoral College. And, and these institutions exist for a reason. So, um, looking at Article 1, Section 3 of the Constitution, it was originally, um, it originally said the Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state, chosen by the legislation. Legislator thereof. For six years, each senator shall have one vote. Okay, right, so originally the Senate was not selected by the people, it was actually uh, selected by the state legislatures. And the reason why this was is we wanted the Senate um, to have representation for the states. The smaller states knew that they could be railroaded by the larger states uh, if they didn't get an equal voice in at least one of the chambers
0: why was it important that the states themselves have power? Don't we live in a democracy where the will of the people is what ultimately matters?
1: Uh, I think it's important to understand that the framers never intended for us to be a true democracy. And in fact, America is not a true democracy. Uh, you know, anybody who paid attention in civics class in high school would understand that, um, we are both a Republic and a democracy, right? Um, and so, for instance, if we were to take a vote right now and 51% of the population were to, say, uh, outlaw free speech, for example, 51% of the population said the government has the right to ban free speech, that would be declared unconstitutional, even though a majority of the population voted for it, it would not be allowed by our government. So we, we are not literally in a direct a democracy. Um, and so it's important that the states have voice in the matter because there were a conglomeration of states, you know, the idea that the founders had is that the government most local to you should have the most control over your life. And so we were several states coming together as one sovereign nation, right? Uh, The American's Creed says we are a sovereign nation of many sovereign states, one and inseparable, established upon the principles of freedom, equality, justice, and humanity, right? So we have an important understanding of that, but um, any of you who have participated in an election recently would say wait a minute um, I vote for my senator um, what do you what do you mean that the senators were you know originally slated to be voted upon by the state legislators um, well that is thanks to good old amendment 17 which was ratified in 1913 which then changed it to the Senate of the United States shall be composed of two senators from each state elected by the people thereof for six years so again as we learn in civics class, uh, every two years, approximately one-third. Of course, 100 is not divisible by three. So, you know, give or take one-third of the Senate's uh, seats are up for re-election each cycle.
0: Why the number six? Do you Is it important that the Senators each serve for such long terms?
1: Um So, the reason why that was given is uh, it was supposed to be, quote, a cooling saucer. So, um, Thomas Jefferson uh, had made that uh, reference. He had originally said that (laughs) um, it was to be an anchor, a fence, a saucer. He has very different uh, analogies. Uh, One that I prefer is James Madison. He says that Senate was to be the great anchor of government. He went on to explain it would be a necessary fence against the fickleness and passion that tended to influence the attitudes of the general public and members of the House of Representatives. George Washington is to have told Jefferson the framers had created the Senate to quote cool House legislation just as a saucer was used to cool hot tea. So the House was supposed to be almost as if a referendum every two years to Uh, continually change. Every seat in the House of Representatives is up for election every two years, whereas the Senate, again, only one-third of them is uh, up for election approximately every two years. So it was designed to be this staying force, this fence, this long-term acting as a check and balance that each of these are have separate but equal roles when it comes to our government with the Senate having to do judiciary hearings, having to do um, many of the other duties, whereas the House is setting up duties such as uh, investigative uh, efforts such as the impeachment amongst other things. And so, um, you know, not each of the House is not considered more powerful than the other, though you often hear the lower chamber of Senate Uh, being referred to as the House, and the upper chamber referred to as the Senate. Uh, But each of them has their own distinct reasons and importance for why we have them in our government.
0: So it almost seems like the Senate was designed for a sort of gridlock to occur, to be the thing that stops the other branches of government from doing things in a hasty manner, because if we had um, branches of government that were constantly causing things to happen and being prime movers in the government, then a slight majority might work to take away the liberties of a minority. And what the framers were really frightened of was this idea of mob rule where 51% can dictate to the rest of the world or the rest of the country exactly what is to happen. And the Senate kind of stands against that by being representative of the states rather than the people and of having these six-year terms rather than two-year terms.
1: Exactly. Um, And that is is what the original framers intended. So uh, it's an important establishment I'm interested to see what is going on uh, going into the 2020 election. Republicans had 54 seats in 53 the, 53 seats, my apologies, 53 seats in the Senate. Um and the Democrats including two independents, I believe, mm-hmm. registered had uh, the remaining seats. So, um I'm interested to see how that has shifted uh, and I have highlighted some key races that we will overall talk about in a moment. Uh but first, the first question I have on the docket is Um, Do we even know, or I I imagine just as there were some holdout states in the Electoral College, I I imagine Georgia, I did see a blurb come across that Georgia was calling a recount, considering Georgia had two senators up for election, which is rarity, Um, you know, I'd be interested to see what happens there. But do we even have a solid count of who has control of the Senate?
0: Well, Sam, I've got some good news and bad news for you. Uh, the good news is that the vast majority of Senate races have had enough results that they can be confidently called. Um, unfortunately, and I'm just going to read you the numbers as they stand right now, Democrats have 48. They have added one. Republicans have 48. They have lost one. So at this moment, it is unclear who will hold the Senate when this is all said and done. However, Democrats coming in, if you'll remember, had to gain four seats in order for them to have a real majority. Technically, they only had to gain three because if one side has fifty, then the uh, if both sides have fifty, then the Vice President, who is technically the President of the Senate. Gets to be the tiebreaker vote, but um, so
1: um, does that forty-eight for the Democrats include the two independents that typically associate with Democratic cauc- caucus? that caucus with them? Yes. Okay. Um, all right. So let's look at the individual elections that we have listed out, um, and I don't remember the order. You've edited the document, so I don't want to go back and look at it. But you can uh, you can give my predictions, and we can go from there.
0: Yes, so for the Senate races that you were most interested in, first off, in Texas, in the race between John Cornyn and M.J. Hagar, you predicted that John Cornyn would retain his seat. Texans have voted, and as the votes now stand, John Cornyn has held his seat. Okay. Next, in Montana, in the race between Steve Daines and Steve Bullock.
1: I guarantee you Steve won.
0: Correct. You predicted that Steve Daines, the Republican, would win. And the people of Montana have voted as it now stands. Steve Daines is victorious. Next, moving on to Kentucky. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell versus his challenger Amy McGrath. You believed that Mitch McConnell would emerge victorious. People of Kentucky have voted as it now stands. Mitch McConnell is victorious. South Carolina Lindsey Graham versus Jamie Harrison you predicted that Jamie Harrison would be victorious in his challenge against Republican Senator Lindsey Graham you this is actually one of the spoilers that you were telling me about that you
1: my, my dad had said that uh, a nationwide race or a race with nationwide implications uh, didn't go away he wanted to the time he told me that was about 8:30 central standard time so i figured it was something on the east coast the only person i can imagine that my dad would care about is lindsey graham just knowing my dad's values so uh that is part of the reason i predicted that but graham's polling didn't look super great especially after the confirmation of amy coney barrett there was that whole situation with the judiciary committee so i just i, I didn't imagine his chances were good but i could be wrong
0: and Lindsey Graham has been the um, lead, the head of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate. So he plays a very important role in the Republican Party. Yes. Well, as I said before, you predicted that Jamie Harrison would be victorious. People of South Carolina have voted, and Jamie Harrison was unsuccessful in his attempt to unseat Lindsey Graham.
1: Okay.
0: Moving on to Iowa. The race between Republican Joni Ernst and Democrat Teresa Greenfield. You predicted that Theresa Greenfield would emerge victorious. The people of Iowa have voted, and Joni Ernst has withheld against Teresa Greenfield. Moving on to Maine, to a very, very interesting, very tight race with one of the most endangered senators on the Republican side of the aisle... In Maine, Susan Collins versus Sarah Gideon. You and the polls predicted that Sarah Gideon would emerge victorious, but the people of Maine voted, and Susan Collins retained her seat. Really,
1: that yeah. is that is probably one of the biggest shocks I've heard. Uh, wow.
0: When on on Wednesday, when I woke up, I woke up at four a.m. for um, for work and going in, but I checked the results as they had come in by that point, and that was one of the top things that I saw and the most surprising for me because the polls were not good for her, but she has held on to Maine, and even though she's rather moderate and breaks with Republicans on many issues, including recently the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, the fact that she caucuses with the Republicans means that she contributes to their effort to be in the majority, which can make all the difference in certain things. Moving on to Georgia. As we mentioned earlier, Georgia actually had two Senate elections going on right now. Their normal one and then a special election to replace the Republican senator who had retired due to health reasons. So um, you predicted that both of these seats would go blue. In the regular election, people of Georgia voted and... David Perdue, the Republican, received 49.8% of the vote, a plurality. However, in Georgia, in order to become a senator, you have to receive at least 50% of the vote, so that race will go to a runoff. For the special election, Democrat Raphael Warnock received 32.9% of the vote, a plurality, while Kelly Loeffler of the GOP received 25.9% of the vote, and Doug Collins also a Republican, received 20% of the vote. That race will also go to a runoff. Assumedly with the top two Probably candidates
1: yes. going forward. Okay. Um, and from what I understand, another spoiler I had is that Georgia was undergoing a recount, for at least from what I had seen a blurb pop up. Um, and considering these elections were close and also compounding the fact of 2018, you have the whole situation of Stacey Abrams going on in Georgia. I imagine these races are going to be highly, highly, you know, sought after and the eyes of the nation are really on Georgia.
0: Yes. Georgia is one of the states that we've been paying extra special close attention to and the results of which were Donald Trump needed to win Georgia in order to win. And, we shall see whether or not he succeeds. Yeah, his his path
1: for 270, almost any breakdown you look at it includes Georgia,
0: realistically. Mm-hmm. And finally, for the Senate, and we're not going through every single Senate race, but these are some of the more interesting ones that Sam especially wanted to be able to react to. In Arizona, in the race between fighter pilot Martha McSally and astronaut Mark Kelly, the people of Arizona voted you predicted that Mark Kelly would win and you were correct. Oh,
1: man, was it close?
0: Mark Kelly got 51.3% of the vote and Martha McSally got 48.7.
1: Okay, so that that is pretty close. Yes. All right, we are moving on to uh, the House of Representatives. Yes. So, going into the 2020 election, uh, Democrats had a large majority. Um, in the House. I imagine they will retain it. Uh, I could be wrong as we move forward. But let's uh, let's talk a, bit, a little bit about the House of Representatives. So um, something I found out interesting enough is, uh, and I discovered this due to a race out in California, which we'll be talking about in a minute, you have Maxine Waters versus Joe Collins. And Joe Collins was doing a lot of social media advertisement. Uh, For his campaign, and one of the things that he pointed out is that um, Maxine Waters does not live in her district. Um, You know, he has an ad. I think it was called uh, Mansion Maxine or Millionaire Maxine. I don't remember which. Uh, But he was pointing out that she has a a six million dollar mansion that is not, in fact, in her district. And I was like, Is that that legal? Uh, And sure enough, I I looked up in the Constitution, and we have. Uh, In the Constitution, it says, No person shall be a representative who shall not have attained to the age of 25 years and been seven years a citizen of the United States, and who shall not, when elected, be an inhabitant of that state in which he shall be chosen. That is to say that, uh, according to the Constitution, you have to be a resident of the state that you are running for in the house of representatives but you do not have to live in the district that you're representing Um, i was not aware of that until uh, really looking into it but that's just a fun blurb about the house of representatives again as we talked about earlier when we were contrasting it with the senate uh, all of the members are up for election every two years so it's much more subject to change as compared to the
0: senate all right well We'll start right off with that race in California between Maxine Waters and Joe Collins. And you predicted that Maxine Waters would emerge victorious. People of the California district, 43rd district, I think, have voted and Maxine Waters emerged victorious.
1: Mm. Joe, Joe did have a good social media campaign. I will say that. He was a veteran, um, seemed like uh, a good guy with a good head on his shoulders. So I'd be interested to see... Uh, where his career in politics takes him. And I hope that he does con- decide to run for, you know, some other office and pursue. I think he he's, a, from what I've seen and researched on him, he seems like a good individual.
0: Maybe he can run for the house in a different district. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, pretty much.
0: All right, so moving on, the rest of these uh, house races that we're going to be looking at are in Texas because that is the state in which we reside. And so these... Our closest to home affect us most personally. And so starting out, we're looking at the race between Wesley Hunt and Lizzie Fletcher. You predicted that Wesley Hunt would be victorious. And it is, in fact, Lizzie Fletcher who emerged in this race. Also in Texas, we have the race between Dan Crenshaw and Seema Lajevardian. In this race, Dan Crenshaw emerged victorious, as you predicted.
1: Not surprised.
0: Also in Texas, we have a race a little close to home for you in San Antonio between Maro Garza and Joaquin Castro. You believed that Castro would retain his seat, and you were correct.
1: Yep, and that is uh, that is the district I live in, so that that's why I was interested in that race. And then uh, there's another race in San Antonio that I think we're talking about next, and that is just next to me. Uh, and that is the Wendy Davis uh, race.
0: Yes, so Wendy Davis versus Chip Roy. You believed that Wendy Davis would emerge victorious, the people next to you voted, and Chip Roy ended up winning.
1: Wow, okay.
0: And so now looking at the big picture, the as you said before, the Democrats came into this race with a pretty significant uh, lead in the House, and as it currently stands, we don't have all the results quite in yet, but the Democrats have 214 House seats secured. They need 218 to get the majority. And the Republicans have 195. And the last count that I looked at, it seems like the Republicans have gained 10 to 15 seats in this election cycle.
1: Okay, so we've, we, I say we, the Republican Party has narrowed that gap, but it, it likely, at least from the numbers we're looking at now, still end up in a Democrat controlled uh,
0: House. Correct.
1: Which, to be honest with you, um, you know, I'm coming mostly from a, a moderate with slight Republican leanings perspective, um, and so for me, a divided government actually is a good thing, right? So we're going to have some stability. You're not going to get something crazy through without major bipartisan support. Uh, we look at you know what happened over this past cycle with having uh, the crime reform bill that got passed. That was something that needed to be passed, and it Did get passed with overwhelming bipartisan support, and so I think that in some aspects a divided government is, is a good thing because it allows, um, unless it is something that really really needs to get done, um, it allows neither party to have you know this crazy wish list that they can just check off and go, you know, take it either direction, and allows you know checks and balances to take place.
0: Yep, And both sides have to move in the direction of the larger number of people, which, you know, anyone probably finds themselves leaning to one side or the other of a spectrum. And if they're leaning towards those who are further to the right of them, if they're a Republican or further to the left of them, if they're a liberal, then that means that they are appealing to a minority rather than appealing to a majority. And when you have a divided government, then you have to reach across the aisle to a certain degree. And what results is ultimately the things that do get passed are things that have that overwhelming support, like that criminal justice reform bill that we were talking about.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, now we are moving on to the biggest race that was on the 2020 ballot. Uh, as some have called it, it was the referendum on Trump. Um Right. And we have nationwide polls that were taking place and there was polling data nationwide that was indicating that Joe Biden would win. But I want to point out that uh, nationwide polling is not very helpful. Right. Because uh, the way the United States elects a president. And there's a lot of controversy over the Electoral College. Um, You know, some people are arguing that we should abolish it. Uh, Again, these institutions were founded for a reason. Okay. And that is the smaller states had to have assurances that they were gonna be given uh, fair treatment in comparison with their larger state partners, right? Um, especially when you go all the way back to something like the Three-Fifths Compromise, Virginia was gonna have a massive amount of population, including its freed and slave populations. Again, there were travesties committed in the you know early days of America, especially in regards to slavery. Um, and I think it's important that we understand that those were present, but uh, I don't think that means we have to throw out the entirety of that section of American history. I think we can all recognize that it's a black eye, something that we wish uh, we hadn't done. I think it's something that, um, you know, we should talk about, but I don't think it's anything that disqualifies the entirety of our history. And I really appreciate... Um, you know the civil rights movement used the arguments of you know what the founders wrote. You know we, we you wrote that all men were created equal, and you know it was it was talking about cashing in on that promissory note that you would treat us as equals. Um, so I think it's you know, very important that we talk about that, but um, that's just a side tangent in regards to you know, Virginia having a massive population at the time, and, and New Jersey was a rather small state at the time. And so the smaller states, typically up north, needed assurances that they weren't just going to get railroaded, uh, that is to say only having one avenue option um, by the larger states. And so they came up with a system of the electoral college that is to say your state votes uh, and your state gets a certain allotment of votes. And that certain allotment of votes is equal to uh, the number of representatives you have in Congress. So the number of uh, people that you have in the House of Representatives plus your two senators for each state. And so that's how the Electoral College is divided up. Recently, it's come under scrutiny, of course, because you have a situation where a president can win the popular vote but not win the Electoral College Um But I I want to point out something that's interesting here. You know, people talk about it. um, But rarely does a president actually win majority of the popular vote. Uh, In fact, in 1992, Bill Clinton did not win a majority of the popular vote. He received a plurality of 43% but not a majority, right? In fact, he went on to become president again when he ran in 1996. He also did not receive a majority at that election either. It was just a plurality. So, um, you know, it could cause major problems if we go to a popular vote and require a majority. Uh, and then a retort for that would be, of course, well, what you could do is you could have uh, the presidential election and uh, instead of requiring a majority, uh, you could just require a plurality. Okay. Or you could
0: have a runoff.
1: You could have a runoff. Oh, man, runoff, that'd be a great idea. Except the problem is, like, if we do, say we, say we end up doing a plurality, right? Um, you know, someone with, you know, literally 30% of the vote could win because well, that's a plurality and you have 10 party candidates running from 10 different parties uh, and it just ends up not being an effective system. So then, you know, as Taz mentioned, you hear some people say, well, we have a runoff, right? Well, the problem with a runoff is you take the top two candidates. Imagine the top two candidates, you know, say we have the pro this party, the pro that party, you know, say we end up instead of having, you you know, a moderate right party, a moderate left party, ended up being the top two seats. Say now it's like a far right candidate and a moderate right candidate. Okay, now you're running a runoff situation. You only have those two options. Or even, you know, the other side of the aisle, imagine it's a moderate left versus a far left, right? Or moderate versus moderate, etc. And so it creates this whole complex situation where you're having to literally pick the, you know, worse or better of two evils in a situation to try to get the vote. And so the Electoral College is a solution that allows us to have a definitive result regardless of the whim of the popular vote when it comes to dealing with a plurality or a majority or things like that, and only deal with the presidential election in a single election as compared to having to do it in multiple elections with runoffs and other situations.
0: Well, here's a thought. What, have you, what if there was ranked choice voting at the national level?
1: I think range choice voting is a great idea. Um, I really do. Um, I think it's something that would require some, uh, you know, either legislative or uh, amendment changes to the Constitution. And I'm, I'm not a constitutional scholar, so I can't speak to that.
0: And no. just before we go further, the definition of ranked choice voting is you would look at a ballot that would have several options. So the Republican Party, the Democrat Party, the Green Party, the Libertarian Party, and however many other people were running at the national level. And instead of saying, I pick this one, it being a multiple choice situation, it would be a, a system of ranking where you'd say, this is my first choice, this is my second choice, this is my third choice. And ultimately, you would select the leader by seeing who got the most favor out of all of them. And that would allow, instead of having to choose between the lesser two evils, maybe you could say that, oh, my preference is this third party candidate, but if it has to be one of the two most popular at the time, then I can pick this one. And that would actually allow third-party candidates to gain more percentage of the vote than they currently do where voting third-party is seen as a waste of your vote or as an opportunity to give the other candidate um, a chance to win the one that you definitely don't want to vote for.
1: Yeah. Um, And I think ranked-choice voting is a great idea to implement because as you said, it would give people that option, uh, you know, and it's a very similar thing that happens in the caucus system, right? So uh, we, we talk about, you know, uh, caucusing when it comes to uh, Iowa in particular in the primaries, right? So um, you all come together and, you know, you have, You know, this corner of the room, for instance, uh, I'll talk about this year's candidates. Uh, You know, we have Pete, you know, over in this corner and you have Bernie over in that corner and you have, you know, Biden in this corner. Right. Uh, And if a candidate doesn't receive, you know critical mass, that is to say if it doesn't receive a certain percentage in the first alignment, what it will do is allow, um, okay, Pete is out for this caucus. You can't have him. So uh, now you need to shift over to one of the other camps that receive that critical mass. Um, and so ranked choice voting could do something similar, whereas to say, okay, say, you know, you have your candidates, you have, you know, Joe Jorgensen, who's your libertarian candidate. You have Howie, who is um, the candidate for the Green Party this year. You could select either one of them as your first choice vote because you're saying, okay, both of the establishment candidates are trash. Uh, I don't want to vote for them in this cycle, so I'm going to vote third party. It will allow you to do first, but say you really hate one of the establishment candidates more than the other one. You, know, you could then put that person as your second choice. So if you know, the third party candidate doesn't receive that critical mass, it will allow you to shift to your second choice option. So uh, it's a way to help open the avenue for third-party candidates. Uh, Again, as I just talked about the Electoral College, Electoral College kind of is designed to keep some third-party candidates at bay. Um, I think that, you know, if we really wanted to get rid of the Electoral College, we would have to change the entirety of the American system because Mm. we would would straight-up go to almost a parliamentary or quasi-parliamentary system. Um, like they would have over in European countries such as Britain, right? And then you have, you know, these multiple parties having to join together for a conglomeration to get a caucus to then be either in control of the Senate or or whatever. And so it, it just, it's not feasible, but I do think that right now where we're at, we have such polarized voices on both the right and the left that they're moving ever further right and ever further left. And these middle group of people really don't know where to go and don't have a good place. And so I think that, Opening up a choice like ranked choice voting would would give those people a voice to say, "Okay, I'm not really digging what's going on here. And so I want to make that known. But I really, really don't like, you know, X candidate compared to Y candidate. So uh, I think ranked choice voting might be something that we can look at in the future, um, especially for our primary system. I think our primary system would benefit largely from that.
0: For sure. For sure. All right, well, starting off, even though it doesn't really affect the outcome of the election, I'm going to start out by reading you the results as they stand of the popular vote. Okay. Joe Biden, 50.5%. Donald Trump, 47.7%. Okay,
1: so no third-party candidate got 5% of the popular vote.
0: Correct. Oh, so, man. our chosen candidate Joe Jorgensen did not really make the make the podium in this particular race.
1: Um, and the reason why we we're talking about that five percent, that five percent is actually really important because the FEC, uh, which is the Federal Election Committee. Right. They are what uh, give money to candidates for campaigning and things like that and for parties, etc. And if a party were to receive 5% of the popular vote in a national election, they could then receive FEC funding They are qualified for it. So if anyone ever tells you voting third party is throwing away your vote, okay, um, I voted in Texas. I can almost assuredly tell you, uh, considering the fact that we just discussed that you know Texas voted in John Cornyn, I can almost guarantee at this point that Texas did not turn blue. That Texas's electoral votes went to Donald Trump, and so um, I was fairly certain that Texas was going to vote for Trump. So. Voting for Joe Jorgensen didn't really affect that. I knew Trump was going to win Texas, but it allows, you know, the FEC funding, the possibility, I should say, for the FEC funding. Uh, but alas, that didn't happen.
0: Moving on to the Electoral College. We've alluded several times to the fact that we had our eyes on a couple of very specific states. One of those was Nevada which Biden was leading in, but that was very, very close. Another was Georgia, which started out looking red, but slowly started to shift into the blue. Another was Pennsylvania, which Trump was initially doing quite well in, but as we know, they had that rule that allowed mail-in ballots to roll in until yesterday, um, regardless of their postmark. Another was Michigan, and finally Arizona. The two main states that we were looking at, however, were Nevada and Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, because it was so vital to Trump's re-election campaign, and for a long time he was winning by a point in there, and then slowly it started to shift towards the blue. Nevada, like I said, was going for Joe, and until yesterday, Joe was at 264 electoral college votes with the states that he had. And Nevada was worth six votes. So Trump had to win every single one of the states that I just mentioned in order to be at all successful. But Joe just had to keep holding on in Nevada. As of this morning, Pennsylvania and Nevada moved solidly for Joe Biden. And outlets like CNN and The Washington Post have called the election for Joe Biden with 279 Electoral College votes. While Trump currently has 214 solidly for himself. That number will go up likely as some of these other states come in for him. But
1: Do we know anything about what's going on in Florida?
0: Florida actually went for Trump. Okay. And it was called very early. Since 2000, when they had that whole hanging Chad thing, they've actually streamlined their election process and got it very efficiently done. And so on election night, we knew very clearly that Trump had.
1: What about what about Michigan?
0: Michigan broke for Biden 50.6% to 47.9%.
1: Okay. So I imagine there's going to be some litigation filed in Michigan. Yeah. Um, and
0: Pennsylvania.
1: And Pennsylvania. Here's my thing about the Pennsylvania situation. Uh, I think it's utterly ridiculous that John Roberts, for some reason, trying to hold a, you know, shred of legitimacy or whatever decided to not take up the case uh for pennsylvania and then deal with it after the election the fact of the matter is um you can't vote after election day right and so the fact that pennsylvania was allowing mail-in ballots to arrive regardless of postmark up until november 6th is just utterly ridiculous Uh, i think that if they were postmarked by the third they should be counted and if they're not postmarked by the third personally i think they should be just thrown out
0: Now, um, I'm going to do a little bit of myth-busting here. So, um, you mentioned earlier that you heard the rumor that 101% of registered voters were voting in Michigan. Michigan does have same-day voter registration. Okay. So, that is a pretty likely explanation for numbers like that. Okay. In Pennsylvania, they are sequestering votes that come in after Election Day, and... The day after election day, two hundred ballots showed up, okay. So and not that number has gone amount. down yeah. since then. Yes. Yeah.
1: So, uh, not a not an overly significant amount. Okay, that's that's fair. I still anticipate lit- um litigation to be happening in those states, um, but I think at the end of the day, I think we're going to see exactly what we saw in two thousand. I think we're going to see litigation for litigation's sake, um, and it's not going to change anything. Unless we uncover massive, and I mean massive, amount of voter fraud, which I highly doubt. Again, like we mentioned with Michigan, I didn't know how accurate it was. I heard it through uh, some rumor mill without you know really verified sources. And again, something like same-day registration could easily explain that. So, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to say that same-day registration is slightly problematic, but we're going to put a pin in that, and we're going <laughs> to leave that there. Um, but yeah, this... <laughs> This has been an interesting uh, election. So uh, right now we are at no clue what's going on in the Senate. We have some clue what's going on in the House. Mm-hmm. And we have kind of most of a clue what's going on in the presidency. That's, that's what I'm gathering.
0: As, yes, as we stand right now, we're most likely looking at going into January of 2021 with Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi I'm going to guess that—I'm going to put it out here, there and guess that both of those Georgia Senate seats are probably going to go red. And if that happens, we'll probably be looking at the, the continuation of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell.
1: Um, so, right now it's 48-48, so there are a total of two seats, left, open, right. Or four seats left open. Mm -hmm. open. Uh, Bad math there, my apologies. Um, So you have the two that are, of course, Georgia, where everyone has their eyes on. And I agree with your analysis. I think they will go red, especially after people see that Joe Biden has now won presidency. um, And, you know, the House is under Democratic control. I think... By and large, most people like a divided government. So I do agree with your analysis that both those seats will flip red. Also, I think in that one race where there were two Republicans running, I think those two Republicans are going to compound on top of each other and just completely uh, overwhelm the Democratic candidates. So I, I agree. Uh, either both red or one red, one blue. I don't see a scenario where they go, both go blue. But that being said, um, what are the other two that were kind of sitting there going, eh, I don't know what's going on there?
0: The other races are North Carolina and Alaska. So that's that would be Lisa Murkowski's race and North Carolina is
1: No, it's not Murkowski's race, it's Dan Sullivan. Dan
0: Sullivan. But what's interesting is
1: they only have fifty percent reporting right now, but Dan Sullivan has sixty percent of that vote. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Dan Sullivan's gonna freaking win that. And then the other one was North Carolina. Yeah,
0: Tom Tillis. Tom
1: Tillis. Okay, the problem here is, does North Carolina require a um, majority or does it require plurality?
0: Not certain. It looks like he's got 48.7% of the vote right now, Uh as opposed to 47, which Cal Cunningham has. If they go into a runoff, I imagine some of the people who voted for Libertarian Shannon Bray would probably break for him. So
1: right now, we're um, we're kind of just waiting on those four results. Uh, I imagine Alaska will go Republican to give a 49th. I imagine at least one of the Georgia races will go Republican mm-hmm. to give Republicans a total of 50. Um, and then whatever happens in North Carolina. It's leaning red right now by 1.7%, so not a whole, whole lot. Um, And then, of course, the other race in Georgia, which is is pretty close. So, all in all, well, uh, this has been an interesting 2020 uh, election. It caps off an interesting year in 2020. So, uh, thank you for joining us for uh, our election special. Uh, This is not something that we uh, not going to be the format of our normal podcast. Again, if you're wanting to listen to that, you will um, likely go back to another episode and you'll see how we uh, have it altered in those two alternating uh, episode styles that we will be releasing. So uh, if you've been joining us today, awesome. If you haven't, well, you should. Um, and go ahead and give us a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: This has been Front Porch Report, the election special.
1: Thank you.